Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the podcast from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. I'm your host, Roger Baker. One of the strengths of geopolitical analysis is the ability to move above the fray of current politics. As a tool of assessment, geopolitics often works best in, in looking at strategic balances, at drivers and constraints. But while nations are often discussed as the unit of action, uh, reality requires us to understand the input and role of decision makers, organizations, and institutions into our calculations, particularly in shorter time frames or narrower geographic scopes. In this more focused approach, we can often consider two simultaneous geopolitical ideas, right? One would be objective geopolitics, as far as anything can be objective, and the other is perspective geopolitics. The actions of decision makers are driven more often not by what is, the objective geopolitics, but by what they see and think, the perceptive geopolitics. The results, however, are much more influenced by objective geopolitics than they are by the wishes or desires of the actors. So to discuss some of the ideas and methods of leadership analysis, which plays into this um, understanding those perceptive geopolitics, I'm really happy today to be joined by Dr. Ken DeCleva, a practicing psychiatrist, um, also a senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. Dr. DeCleva served as a senior U.S. diplomat and regional medical officer and psychiatrist with the U.S. Department of State, both overseas and domestically, where he served several years as the director of the U.S. State Department's worldwide diplomatic mental health program. He's published widely and given numerous presentations in academic, private sector, and U.S. government settings in the field of leadership analysis, including profiles of Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, and Kim Jong-un. Kim, or Ken, Thanks for joining me here today. Uh, thank you very much, Roger. It's a pleasure and honor to be on your program. So let's begin with a little bit of uh, definition and background. Um, you know, you, you work on, in part, in all the other things you do, you work on leadership analysis. Um, you know, when some people think of leadership analysis, it's things that you would see in the movies or in the shows, and it's these really deep psychological profiles and things like that. What, what are you talking about when you're talking about, or what are you looking at when you're doing leadership analysis? And, and where does this field come from? Uh, the field really started during World War II when uh, then-director of OSS, uh, General William Donovan, commissioned uh, a Harvard psychiatrist, uh, William Langer, in 1942 to develop a psychological profile of Germany's Chancellor Adolf Hitler. The OSS felt, as did the administration, that the tides of war were turning and they wanted to understand Hitler better and try to figure out how he would react as those tides of war turned against Germany. And so Langer put together a multidisciplinary team and published a, a very fascinating psychological profile of Hitler that was declassified and is available uh, in book form uh, as the mind of Adolf Hitler. Uh, so this work proved useful in trying to understand psychological motivations how a leader would react during, in crisis, in possible negotiations, and how others saw the leader, those who worked around him, as well as those in the larger society, and also how the leader perceived himself or herself. This type of work was later continued and expanded by uh, my friend and mentor, the late Dr. Gerald Post, a psychiatrist who developed this discipline and really pioneered it at the CIA from 1965 to 1986, and then 
for several decades afterwards when he taught at George Washington University. And again, he borrowed Langer's model. The, the key point during that time is that these analyses, which are also have been called leadership psychology or political psychology, really looked at antecedents in the leader's childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, to try and look at psychological traits and how they would help us understand a leader's political behavior. I think what's different now is that while that is still important and of interest, we also want to look backwards, kind of a reverse engineering approach, which is what are the governance outcomes that the leader has achieved? How do they stay in power? What are the different constituencies and equities that they have to deal with to maintain power and to be successful as a leader? So you're, you're looking at it from both ends of the spectrum across their life. So, so when you do this, um, it's not merely then an assessment of the individual, it's also an assessment in some ways of the institutions around them, formal or informal, um, and, and perhaps the, the, the geopolitical context of the world or the region or the, the locality in which they have been existing in at different key moments in time, yes? Yes, that's absolutely critical. You, you have to be able to contextualize this in order to fit leadership analysis into a larger, as you would call a geopolitical analysis or intelligence analysis puzzle. It's one component of it. And you have to understand both the cultural, historical, and contextual uh, array of constraints and, and what we call higher order effects of a leader's uh, decisions. And, and the, one of the most challenging parts is trying to understand who influences a leader. Not only who do they influence, but who influences them? Who, who do they talk to when they're making decisions? Who do they trust? And that's really hard because in a lot of authoritarian systems that I've studied, such as Russia, North Korea, China, uh, they're very opaque. And even though a lot has been written about leaders such as Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin, they've been in power for a long time, there's an awful lot we still don't know and an awful lot as a result that we get just plain wrong. It, it, in, in, a, in a simplified form, you know, we, we've long done what we used to call empathetic analysis, and that was trying to assess not what would I do if I were in that decision maker's shoes, but what would they do? And therefore, trying to look at, you know, what, what, what we could from the from open source intelligence or from from other relationships we had, what are the, you know, influential moments within the history of an individual? Um, again, like you talk about, what are the, the frames of relationships around them now? I know working Southeast Asia, um, it, you know, it was often which was the military class that they graduated with, right? And certain military classes had certain characteristics that then would play into the leadership, but also into um, the, the networks of relationships. When we, when we think about this, um, you know, on, on the one hand, it sounds uh, either really complicated or on the other hand, it sounds like it can be so oversimplistic that we get false, false ideas or, or we impose ourselves. What are some of the ways to engage in this form of leadership analysis that will help us overcome our own cultural bias, cultural perspectives, and things of that sort, or avoid uh, what we often hear, which is 
um, simply asserting that the the opponent or the other is um, irrational, um, inexplicable, um, or fearing that by explaining how they think, we might be accused of justifying their actions. That's a great question. And I, in, in other leaders that I've studied in the 90s with Dr. Post, such as Dr. Radovan Karadzic, the uh, then president of the Bosnian Serb Republic and now serving uh, a life sentence in The Hague for genocide and war crimes, or the late Slobodan Milosevic, I was often asked, how can you try to understand these leaders, people who've done horrible things? How does does studying them and trying to understand them, to use, to borrow your term, an empathy, uh, humanize them? And, and my answer is yes, it does, to some extent. And my motto in this work has been, nothing which is human is alien to me. But in order to understand a leader such as Vladimir Putin, uh, Russia's president, in today's Ukraine war, you're really borrowing not only from psychology and leadership psychology, but you're dealing with a, a nuclear armed hostage taker who's holding the Ukraine hostage. So you're borrowing what, what FBI negotiators have called, uh, Chris Voss and Gary Nessner, called tactical empathy. You have to step into their shoes and try to understand their perspective, how they see the world in order to look at their political behaviors. So I think that's that's really critical to, to step outside of our own cultural, individual, personal biases. The, the dangers of groupthink are very real. Uh, other biases I would call implicit biases, which I've seen in, in studies of uh, leaders uh, from Asia, for example. These are, these are, some of these even have, I hate to say this, but a racist tone, which is that an Asian leader could never possibly outsmart us. Well, we know better. Uh, so I think it's important to throw those biases aside and look at the leader for, for who they are and try to get a deeper understanding of what makes them tick. Right. And, and, and if we can get a better understanding, I think, you know, you sort of mentioned this earlier, what would they do in a crisis situation or things like that? How can we anticipate their reaction to a particular stimulus, um, which then gives, you know, either policymakers or, or people trying to assess what's likely to come in the future to assess implications, uh, a better way to anticipate um, action and response? Um, what what are some of the limitations uh, uh, in in working in this field or in trying to utilize this this tool um, as a way to better anticipate the actions and behaviors of of leaders and therefore of states? One of one of the limitations that I have as a leadership analyst is I've never met these leaders. Uh, now that being said, I've spoken with people who have spent personal FaceTime with, with the leaders who I've profiled. Uh, and, th and that's helpful, but that introduces other, other potential biases that have to be filtered as well. Uh, but that being said, getting back to an earlier point you made, I, I tend to see these leaders as most leaders. They're rational. This particular trio that we're talking about, Putin, Xi, and Kim, they're ruthless, and they're very resilient. And we have a tendency to underestimate them and frankly get them just wrong in terms of understanding their their next steps, if you will. One of the ways this is done is we uh, 
we tend to use often a political science type of framework to understand their decision making and and attribute more rigidity to them than probably need be the case. But one of the things that I've argued with these leaders is that because they're rational, they're also tactically and strategically savvy and are not as rigid and they're able to adapt uh, and and be flexible in in different situations. Even though there's certainly has been the case with President Putin that he's had much more of a tightening of his inner circle, more more groupthink, if you will, a narrowing, more isolation, and a more of a cognitive rigidity in, in, in terms of decision making, which is often seen in both elderly and especially in authoritarian leaders. But that being said, he still continues to show tactical flexibility in terms of achieving his goals. We see this this week in in his weaponizing of food with the cancellation of the grain deal and bombing storage depots in in the Black Sea, which is a, a horribly cruel weapon, but puts pressure on other systems, not only countries in the global South and Africa, but unexpected pressure in countries like China, which depends on uh, grain imports as well. So he's created a whole set of other pressures uh, both directly and indirectly that now have to be analyzed. So that's an example of where we have to look at different order effects and and see how they play into those decisions. Yeah, what, one of the things from, from looking at North Korea for a, a, a really long time is is that frequently from the outside there is this uh, sort of default assertion that uh, you know North Korean leadership is supreme, and that somehow, and not only in North Korea but in other places, that auto, quote autocratic leaders have no constraints, no checks on them, no they they just do whatever they want, and that's what it's like. And the reality is that in these these autocratic systems, there are very complex political, social, and economic dynamics that these leaders are, if they're effective they're balancing all of those and they're constantly balancing different centers of power and different potential competitive spaces within their own um, uh, political circles, economic circles. Um, and, and that requires a certain amount of skill and a certain amount of adaptation, a certain amount of resilience, if they are going to be able to stay in power. And the, the, you know, the, from the Western perspective, the unique thing about autocratic leaders is their longevity. Yes. And we've seen this recently. And, and just if you look at what's going on this week, e each of the leaders that I profiled, let me give an example. With, with Putin's reaction to the, the Wagner mutiny showed a flexibility that we really haven't seen. Most people assumed that after his initial branding of uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner group, as a traitor and that he, he would be dealt with severely, he ended up uh, negotiating kind of a, a, a face-saving deal for Prigozhin to to stay alive for now and and to kind of deal with him and with the Wagner Group as a as an equity that he wants to continue to use in some way to project power asymmetrically in various conflicts, not only in Ukraine but in Africa. Uh, we look at 
uh, Xi Jinping's really skillful diplomacy, his meeting with uh, former Secretary of State Kissinger yesterday was masterful, where he's, he's setting the tone, tempo, and pace of all U.S.-China diplomacy by deciding who he's going to meet with and what kind of traction they're going to get and the words that he uses to describe that meeting in the official Chinese uh, readout of the meeting. I found that really quite fascinating, and it showed President Xi's, I think, remarkable uh, adaptability and, and skillfulness as a politician and as a diplomat, the way in which he's used Kissinger to sort of shift the narrative of U.S.-China relations. With Chairman Kim, what's really fascinating and what's what's also frightening is is I'll I'll start by saying in watching yesterday's uh, interview with CIA Director Bill Burns by uh, NPR's Mary Louise Kelly at the Aspen Security Forum, I was shocked and struck that she did not ask him a single question about North Korea. And one of the things that I think President Obama very much got right in his kind of outbrief to incoming President Trump was. He told President Trump, North Korea will be your single biggest foreign policy challenge. And I think that's true today, where you have uh, the recent tests of a Hwasong-18 ICBM with MIRVs that can reach the United States. North Korea's policy changes last year to a new first strike policy. And the bellicose threats that have come out of them, including their defense minister's statements yesterday when a U.S. nuclear sub docked at Busan, I think... Trying to understand those dynamics is really, really dangerously critical right now. And the other factor is the role of women in North Korea, of who Kim trusts, who are the spokespersons, people such as his sister, Kim Yo-jong, who wields incredible power, or uh, Vice, uh, Vice Minister, Foreign Minister, Che Sun-wee. So this is an interesting changing dynamic as well. Right. And... and 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 I guess there you know the you know as you noted before you never meet these people there there are still some gaps or limitations in using leadership analysis as a tool. One, people don't always make the same decisions in the same the case. We all know that from our own behavior and actions. Sometimes we make decisions based on on emotional factors or other factors, and that that can happen. So we have to be cautious not to take these as as a hundred percent predictive tools, um, but but I guess the other is that um, you know the you know as as uh, um, uh, I forget the name of the historian now you'll know it when I say it you know he he references in studying history you never know whether at one point there was a, you know a, a, a flea in Napoleon's uh, uh, underwear one day that mm -hmm. um, that, yes. that, that 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 there are other factors that we don't that we're not always able to see. So this is a very valuable tool on the service, but we also have to be cautious how we utilize this tool, correct? Yes, I think in, in leadership analysis, one of the things that I've often said is it's, uh, it's less about Freud and more about Sun Tzu. Uh, you have to look at all the other variables and factors. But that being said, we can use it both to try to understand and we can use it to try to anticipate in terms of signals that are sent to the leader. Now we have social media, so there's a lot of different ways of, of for us to send signals to 
uh, uh, President Putin or President Xi. These, these can be done through traditional uh, diplomatic channels uh, uh, and indirect, more secretive diplomatic channels. The example that uh, CIA Director Burns mentioned in his interview yesterday was his meeting last year with uh, SVR Chief Sergei Narishkin, where he very strongly told him what our, uh, how we would look at any Russian use of uh, nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Uh, that would be an example of that type of diplomacy. And, and then you have other types of diplomacy where we can use you know, track two or track 1.5 diplomacy, which is out of the public eye, but which can convey, use an understanding of the leader's psychology to convey messages that will hopefully be heard by them. And our adversaries do the same thing. They study our leaders in the way that we study theirs to try to find openings uh, uh, for diplomacy and communication, even in times of real crisis. The the Chinese use of, of uh, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger in, in this regard, I think, was really masterful. When, as we're talking about this, obviously we're we're looking at this more from a policy perspective, from the the actions of states, from the way states interact with one another. Um, a, a lot of the the entities and organizations I deal with, of course, are businesses, international organizations. They're not the ones shaping the action, uh, but instead they're the ones who are responding to the shifts and adjustments in the global geopolitical environment. Um, are, are there applications for this type of leadership uh, analysis outside of the active policy space? Yes, I think so. I'm glad you asked that question. I think, I think in in looking at uh, international business, if you're looking at traditional uh, societies where you have fully formed, you know, legislative and judicial and government structures. Predictions are easier and you can rely more on traditional business analytics in terms of uh, making these kind of business deals and business decisions. But when you look at when you look at countries such as emerging markets where you may have uh, more opaque uh, and authoritarian leaders where there's a higher degree of concentration of power in the leader, then this type of analysis could be useful because especially in countries in Africa, the leader gives the many countries, the leader gives the blessing to to a particular deal because it fits into their vision of where they want the country to go. Uh, so you have to understand that particular leader's vision and dynamics and style, leadership and anal analytic style to to under, to mitigate risk. You can't eliminate risk, but you're mitigating it. The, the classic examples would be working uh, companies that have worked with uh, Paul Kagame uh, of Rwanda in, in setting up uh, very successful business deals. I'm thinking of Zipline, where they, where they use drones to uh, go from Kigali to remote villages and ship blood products which dropped the postpartum maternal hemorrhage death rate to zero. Uh, that required President Kagame's blessing so that then the Ministry of Health would go forward. There's a lot of decisions made in emerging markets that work in that fashion. So I think this type of analysis is, is helpful where you have large deals, where you have not only 
the direct costs of the business, but the long-term indirect costs, there's a lot of money and a lot of risk involved. So I think this analysis can be helpful in some of those type of spaces. As people look to add this as one sort of tool in their toolkit for assessing the, 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 the future flow of history, as it were, um, what would be some suggestions you would have for individuals looking to, or an analyst looking to start to venture into this field? Maybe not as their their primary focus, but certainly as a as an added element of assessing um, these international dynamics. A, a couple of, a couple of points to that. I think that's a great point. I think besides understanding kind of the state of the art that I've sort of touched upon. Which, is, which really comes from a tradition that goes from understanding leaders of nation states. And, and they've done a lot of this in the intelligence community with leaders of terrorist groups, where there's been a lot of research now that these function like corporate entities. Uh, sort of think of it as the classic case is Hezbollah and, and its leader Nasrallah, or Boko Haram under Shekau, who uh, was, was recently uh, killed. But how do, how do these organizations achieve the, the grim success that they do? So I think those parts are useful. I think there's, I think you have to, a deep understanding of negotiation uh, psychology is really, really helpful. So for, for leadership analysts to have a background in that, I think is useful. And novel technologies are being used. You're going to see a lot being done with, uh, with AI, with chat GPT, with, with a lot of analytics, uh, AI analytics of speeches uh, and facial recognition technologies coming into play where you can look at, based on the work of Dr. Paul Ekman, uh, a very famous psychologist, you can look at a 30 second selfie of a leader or a, a 30 minute speech of a leader and look at micro expressions that are too small to be seen by the human eye that can be analyzed by facial recognition software to show different emotions such as anger hostility joy uh, and other other different emotions so i think we're going to see a combination of traditional analytic methods with novel uh, technologies that will come into play it's it's fascinating and i guess for for um you know us uh us neo-Luddites, there are still some other traditional things outside of the technology space, like being aware of alternate cultures, um, really looking at um, us, you know, some of the, the work in analytical biases and making sure that we're cognizant of our own cultural perceptive analytical biases in looking at um, uh, leaders from other spaces. Um, and and uh, maybe spending some time in in uh, foreign literature, in foreign music, in foreign language um, spaces, because even story structures in different different cultures uh, can can give you a different insight into the way in which the baseline frameworks where where we may perceive things as always going in a particular story arc, they may perceive them in a very different way. Yes, that's a wonderful point. I I'm I'm a a deep student of language and culture and I spent five years in Moscow and I got to know a lot of ordinary Russians. I felt that really helped me understand the culture beyond my reading of its history and its its literature and going to art museums and, and, and concerts, just talking to ordinary people. 
not relying solely on on what I read in the media or the elites, if you will, to, to form my worldview, but but understanding culture is important. And my profile of Karadzic that I published with Dr. Post in 1997, one of the things that I did, I speak fluent Bosnian, I translated Dr. Karadzic's haunting poetry, which written 15 or 20 years before the Bosnian War foresaw in his own unconscious the horrors of the war. Reading that poetry was was a gripping experience for me, and that's why it, we included that in our understanding of, of, of his leadership psychological profile. So I think understanding the culture, the history is really important. I think uh, in, the, in the case of, of President Xi of China, he gave a fascinating interview in 2000 before he was a well-known politician. He was a relative unknown in, in moving up the ranks, if you will, where he talked about his childhood experiences when he was a sent down youth living for eight years in a remote village digging latrines away from his family and how that shaped his sense of identity and who he was as a teenager at the time. So I think those kind of those kind of cultural pieces that come in and historical pieces can can be really, really helpful and are critical in understanding a leader much more so than Western labels. Like calling a leader a narcissist is not really helpful. It doesn't explain that. It doesn't have explanatory power. Uh, most politicians are narcissistic, frankly. So you, it's like calling intelligent people smart. It doesn't tell you anything. You have to look deeper and, and at more of the nuances, as you pointed out. Well, well, Ken, this has been a great conversation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, put you on the spot really quick, and 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 um, in and amongst all of these other things that you do, um, you're also an author. Yes, <laughs> I've I've written I've written two novels, uh, spy thrillers. Well, one is called *The Negotiator's Cross*, which is uh, was published last year, and it's about a uh, an American priest living in Mexico, it gets drawn into hostage negotiations with cartels and various intelligence agencies. And because of his skills and talents, he gets pulled into similar negotiations in Moscow, uh, Russia. And it's about how that changes him as a person psychologically and spiritually. My newest novel, which is coming out next month, is The Last Violinist, which is based, uh, it's a fiction story about a North Korean violinist who defects uh, to the West. And it's about how his defection, he gets tied up with a whole series of relationships with very powerful people, including love relationships with a high-level North Korean wife of a senior diplomat and a Korean-American CIA officer, uh, another relationship. But he gets drawn in with all these intelligence agencies, the CIA, uh, the GRU, North Korean intelligence agencies, and how that plays out in terms of his personal life and his spiritual life where he converts to Catholicism and finds out his own identity and who he truly is. Uh, so I think readers who like a wonderful story about human emotions, betrayal, love, uh, kindness, violence, hatred, joy, a whole range of human emotions wrapped inside a spy thriller will enjoy both of these books. Well, thank you. And I, and, you know, as you, as, 
as we look at this, I guess in the end, what we are talking about as we're thinking about leadership analysis is that aspect of, of the human condition and human emotion. I come back to the, the comment you threw out earlier, nothing which is human is alien to me. Yes, I, I love that quote and I'm reminded of that in my work every day as a practicing psychiatrist and in my earlier work as a forensic psychiatrist where I spent thousands of hours uh, uh, talking to and treating mentally ill criminals, including people charged with the most heinous crimes. And I had to uh, learn to appreciate that and try to understand people and put aside a lot of my biases to do that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Ken. Thank you for having me. It's been a real honor and pleasure to be on your show. And thank you for listening. We've been talking with Dr. Ken DeClava, practicing psychiatrist, senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations, and a former U.S. diplomat. If you'd like to keep up with the latest discussions and assessments of shifting global geopolitical balances, visit RainNetwork.com and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening.